Are you there, Jeff? Yep, I'm here. All right, hang on. Okay. Yeah, you want to mention my secret man background, Tim? Mm-hmm. Okay, guys. Okay. Be quiet. We're going to go live right now. As soon as this thing comes up. Does that account? Let me know when you're ready. I wanted you to count down from five, four, three, two, one, live. I need a countdown. Five, four, three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of No Holds Barred with your host, Frank W. Dukes. Frank Dukes is a martial arts icon, the basis of the film Bloodsport, the number one highest grossing produced martial arts film in cinematic history. Frank also was a New York Times bestseller author with the book The Secret Man. Frank has worked with covert ops from around the world and military on self-defense tactics. Um, he has traveled the world in various capacities as a martial arts ambassador and a martial arts world champion spreading the brotherhood of martial arts. Frank, take it away. This is your uh, first episode of No Holds Barred, and your ho- your guest today is Clayton Thomas. Clayton is a self-defense tactic officer. He is a authorized and, uh, and certified border patrol officer, and he has worked with a lot of dignitaries around the world and protecting our border. And uh, so have you guys take it away. Well, I, I want to say I want to... Frank Dukes. Hey, I just want to say thank you to Tim Beal for that wonderful introduction, but also want to let everyone know our today is Clayton R. Thomas. Clayton has uh, retired just recently from the Border Patrol, and he has distinguished himself in his career uh, immensely with some of the top Washington brass. He's He's worked with the vice president. He's worked with presidents. He's worked with the head of Homeland Security. He was the deputy director of Operation Welcome Allies, which was the resettlement of the Afghan refugees evacuated out of Afghanistan just recently. He's also been the director of operations for probably the, most people call Brown Zero, the hottest spot 
uh, in the point as far as border crossings go, and that's El Paso, Texas. So, Clayton, thank you very much for coming to our show. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. Uh, I consider your brother in arms. I mean, we've worked on opposite sides, and, and sometimes when I was working covertly, I got to tell you that. But uh, I learned through that experience um, just how tough you guys have to be and how diligent you have to be. Uh, in regard to protecting this country. I mean, for people who don't understand it, I mean, if, you, if you're a martial artist, you can relate to the Border Patrol is sort of like having that space you want to protect when uh, someone's trying to feel you out. You want to be able to have a line of defense and keep that opponent away from you uh, is the best cure for violence in my mind. So uh, one of the things I want to discuss with you today, uh, Clinton, is I want to start off with the migrant influx, past and current. What are we seeing? And, and before you even start, let me say this to all our guests. It's really, really important that I, that I make this clear. The title No Holds Barred is not aimed at being a martial arts show. The title No Holds Barred was thought up by myself because it's all about discussing the topics, uh, the issues where you see people have gag work. I got tired of seeing the media basically get the story wrong, uh, whether it's intentional or negligence, I don't know. I got tired of politicians basically misinforming the public along with the media. And lo and behold, for us to be make intelligent decisions in this country, be informed intelligently. And the best people to inform us are the people on the front lines. And that's what Noel's Bard is. This is to give every person who's holding back th that line of adversarial intent to give them a voice. And Clayton, I, I, I want to welcome you as being the first guest. I want to hopefully you can forgive us for some of the technical difficulties in getting this started today. But again, I want to start with my question, and that is, I want you to discuss basically the migrant influx, past and current, and what we're seeing really at the border. What's really going on that we're not being told? Well, I think you said it perfectly. Uh, you know, the media is going to put out exactly what it, it wants to put out. Um, our job in the Border Patrol is dictated by policy, obviously, but politics dictate a lot of it as well. And I think you've seen that over the years in a number of different ways. If you go back to uh, 2019, uh, the most recent influx prior to the one we're seeing now, um, it was the prior administration, and we saw an influx that the Border Patrol had never seen. Uh, for context, the station that I was uh, overseeing at the time, um, at the height of it, for about six or eight weeks, we were seeing we were the most busy, the busiest station in the country, uh, apprehending probably about 7,500 people a week, call it just 1,000 people a day for a round number. Um, when you think about the Border Patrol, the Border Patrol was built uh, since 1924 in, the, in its inception. They apprehend single adult Mexican males. It's not for detention. It's not for holding. Uh, it's a process and uh, send people back to Mexico. So in the influx, um, 
we saw family units, we saw unaccompanied children at record numbers. And as the administration would put in uh, different, I say programs to release people or to remove them to their own country, uh, you would see the demographic switch. It usually took about two weeks. Uh, we probably say as the memo went out, uh, those caught in the pipeline would uh, fall under the new program and then that portion or that demographic would shut down for a while. Uh, the smuggling into the country has been established for generations. Most of the time these people come into the country don't even know where they're going, uh, where they're going to cross. Their route is determined, it's paid for in their host country, and they're escorted to the border. Uh, it's all cartel run, funded, secured on uh, the routes and payments. Um, it's very dangerous. Uh, one thing you're not hearing from the media is just the dangers that these migrants go through as far as being raped, as far as being extorted, robbed, uh, beaten. Uh, and this doesn't just stop when they cross the border. Uh, it continues in the United States. If they're still indebted to a cartel or there's still a payment made, they may be indebted into some kind of work uh, that they have to pay off and live in, in horrible conditions because they can't uh, provide for themselves. So there's a lot of exploitation by this. Uh, people can be paid to work uh, for whatever because they're not in the system. Uh, females uh, often sold into prostitution or other other types of earning money. Um, the U.S. has always been the draw on this. Um, there's never been a definitive in recent past here, especially under this administ current administration, there's no definitive uh, line drawn in the sand. So people know they can come and the chances are they're going to get in and they're going to be released if they're apprehended. Uh, we see many people just turning themselves in. Uh, where they aren't turning themselves in uh, is desperate times. Uh, we're seeing an increase in assaults on agents and uh, people trying to flee. So when you compare the two, in 2019, like I said, our station that, that I was a part of, if we were apprehending 7,500 people a week, or roughly 1,000 people a day, now there are stations that are catching nearly 2,000 a day. So the numbers where we were the busiest station ever, um, now you're seeing an increase in a lot of stations. So um, we are as close now in comparison to 2019, and I'll draw the comparison there, to a catch and release type scenario. That is a draw to the United States. People know that they're going to be released. So in 2019, um, there was a time where we were releasing thousands of families, family units a day, and releasing them into the United States with a notice to appear at some time in the future, which uh, truly allows people to disappear into the system. Uh, they're giving a notice to appear in front of an immigration judge, and they say they're going to 123 Main Street, and they probably go there for a short period of time, and then when they move and they don't change their address, then they're pretty much a ghost in our system. And so you can see where that's problematic. So, um, go ahead, do you have a question, Frank? Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of people have a misconception. I think that one of the misconceptions you could help clear up is people think that the only illegal aliens really coming in here are just uh, Mexican. And that's not, isn't that true? Absolutely not. Actually, the, you know, Mexicans, just because it is our southern border, uh, we do see Mexican influx. But the true, uh, crux of this influx is going to be Central American, Guatemalan, Honduran, El Salvadorian, see Brazilian, Cuban, Venezuelan, 
uh, Dominican Republic, Haitian, uh, you name it, Turkish. Uh, those are the countries that are coming into this influx, mainly Central America. Um, we saw a huge Cuban influx at one time, saw a huge Brazilian influx. It, you know, it fluctuates through as different programs are put into place as stopgap measures. Right. And uh, so that there is a misconception that it's not Mexico that would be considered our main source of a problem because we do have under the consequence delivery system we do have methods to remove people back to Mexico and we'll talk a little more about um, in, in further on about different programs like the state of Mexico migrant protection protocols of title 42 which is pretty hot as well I have some stuff to talk about on that but the main problem that we get to is when you get into these influxes where there's so many people coming at one time you have to draw the line between enforcement and humanitarian efforts. And you can't do both. You can do both up to a certain point, and then there's a point where you have to make the determination. But we're an enforcement agency. The Border Patrol is enforcement, is border enforcement. And when you get overrun, you get overwhelmed, and you don't have the facilities to hold these folks, you don't have any methods to release or remove, then you get into a humanitarian effort, and there is no enforcement on the border. Well, with that overcrowding and what's going on. We hear a lot about these cages and children being denied water, etc. Can you address that issue? I mean, is that true or not true? Is, it, is the media exaggerating the situation? Yeah, it's um, it's a complete exaggeration. Our, our holding areas are much like um, any type of jail. Uh, cinder block cells. They do have the standard toilet sink with potable water that you can drink out of. Um, one situation that comes to mind, I don't know if, if you recall, is um, back in 2019, the Hispanic Caucus uh, visited uh, the station that I was working at, and we hosted them, and immediately that morning was when the media released uh, the very unfortunate Facebook page where some agents said some pretty derogatory things, some hurtful things towards migrants. Uh, that was exploited in, in the beginning of that uh, interaction with the Hispanic Caucus. Um, and then, I don't know if you recall, um, there was a point where uh, AOC, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, uh, said that we had uh, people in custody drinking out of toilets. Uh, I'm not sure if you recall that or not. Well, I was in the cell with her when she said that. Um, and in fact, it's not true. Um, there's potable water. It's said in a couple different languages on the wall. And at that time in 2019, we had a least restrictive policy. So the cell doors were closed. But because we knew we didn't have any criminals, we didn't have any terrorists, we didn't have anything in our population that was known to cause us harm, the doors were shut, but they weren't locked. So let's say a mom needed um, a diaper. She was free to open the door. Uh, we've done an agent go get a diaper, make themselves sufficient if she needed to heat up a bottle. And outside of the doors, we also had five of the big um, Gatorade jugs of water uh, with ice in it, and they were filled at all times. So... Nobody's ever denied water. And when you talk about some of our logistical challenges, we had wraparound services. When you talk about food, you talk about um, cleaning, you talk about water, fruit, supplies, everything. There was wraparound services for everything. And so they were supplied meals, snacks, and, uh, and water at all times, and medical. So you were really given a bad rap and basically lied. And went along with it for its own, I guess, Sorry. political gain. What is what I'm hearing from you, being there. 
So I find that very disturbing. Um, and it's not the first time I'm sure this has happened. What, what other exaggerations, if you will, do you could clear up for us today that went on with Border Patrol? I mean, I, I see a lot of the people try to portray the Border Patrols being less than humane, but the reality of the situation is you guys go in and you actually rescue a lot of these people out of some pretty bad situations, uh, particularly trafficking. You know, you can use the illegal alien status to get them out of uh, out of that, or in many cases, uh, you know, rid the country of the traffickers who are here illegally, obviously, they're criminals. So can you address that issue? Sure, the Border Patrol has always been portrayed, uh, you know, and I've heard it along my career. I've heard it from uh, different members of Congress even um, saying that we're uh, look like big bullies, um, you know, big green bullies. And um, the, there is more compassion, humanitarian effort and empathy within the Border Patrol for uh, the individuals crossing the border than, than you've ever seen, uh, much more even so than when I started my career back in the 90s. Uh, the, the Border Patrol is very, has a very humanitarian edge to it at all times. And the care that goes in when you talk about an agent uh, holding a baby, feeding a baby, changing a diaper, doing any of these number of things, um, it happens every day, all day. And when you talk about the trafficking, we encounter a lot of these individuals who have been harmed along their travels. And the first thing we do, we link up with all the other good federal agencies, you know, uh, namely for something like that, uh, HSI, um, Homeland Security investigations will come in and they'll do the investigation. If there's something in the United States that we can affect uh, and they can help out, they will. And so we do catch, we do go after those smugglers. We do go after the, after the different levels of these cartels that we can touch. Um, there's these different nodes and networks, and if we can affect them through their financial, through their transportation, through anything, uh, we're going to degrade them and diminish their abilities to function at all times. And so the misnomer of us uh, being this big, bad, green machine is, is just a misnomer. Um, these agents um, care for people more than they enforce it at a lot of the time. Yeah, and I've seen that with my own eyes. That's why I, I, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit upset when I, when I hear these so-called stories um, and exaggerations about the Border Patrol. I, I don't know how you guys do it. I honestly don't. You don't get any of the credit, and you're probably more humanitarian than people should know what you have to deal with. And, I mean, you put your lives at risk, you know. There's no question to it. But that one of the things that I always found interesting is the logistical challenges that you, the Border Patrol faces. I mean, I'd like to talk about the wall, how, you know, do you, you know, how the facilities don't accommodate the process and challenges within the agencies. I touched upon a good portion of that, especially regarding the media and congressional tax and EOC and what she had to say. Um, but what is the thing that people talk about when we talk about, like, migrants under the bridge? And, and also, you can talk to us a little bit about your the vice president's uh, visit uh, to, the, to the border, since she's supposed to be the first charge of that. Sure. So starting off with the wall, um, the wall structure that we have, 
So prior to the wall being built under the, the Trump administration, uh, there were walls, there were fences. Um, they were effective to a point. Uh, we'd lived with them for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of advantage to, uh, I guess, for a better way to no better way of saying it, the Trump wall or the one built under his administration. There's two separate walls that were built under there. There's the 18 foot, and then there's uh, 30 foot, and some was funded through him, and some was funded through uh, DoD. So they're both very effective. And they replaced the dilapidated uh, system that was a little hard for agents to see through. Uh, there was limited access points. And so the new wall uh, came with a lot of benefits. Uh, easier for agents to see, so there's a lot of officer safety concerns that were solved with that. Uh, we were able to create some access points for the agents where maybe they didn't have one in the past. And um, it enabled our agents to work in front of and behind, you know, depending on the, on the situation. Um, it is the misnomer is that it's a wall from the east coast to the west west coast or west east. It doesn't work that way. Uh, there are sections of it. There are sections where it's just not practical to build, or you're unable to build it in the middle of the desert. Uh, there's a lot of technology that came with it, and so um, it, it was a useful tool. It's not the solution, but it's a an important piece of the solution to help one our agents maintain their safety, and and two to funnel the the people that are attempting to cross into safer locations and deny them certain locations where we don't want them to cross. And so it was, it was good. And then when the administration has changed and the funding was pulled from the wall, the wall was not complete. Well, then it became more of an officer safety challenge. It became more of a, a logistical challenge and an operational challenge for us because uh, of a simple thing where there was either um, a pedestrian gate, pedestrian gate or a vehicle gate and they were not completed so the wall was not completed and therefore instead of enabling us to spread out our assets throughout the area of responsibility we had to put agents sitting at a gate that wasn't fixed or a door that wasn't fixed uh, so without that funding um, what was a great part to help us with the solution to curb immigration and keep people safe that were trying to enter the country now it depleted our assets and forced us to um, put people maybe where we didn't have to before. And so the, the comparison of the two, uh, we had a structure that was inadequate. This one is very adequate, you know, where, it, where it's at. Um, just maybe it needs to be completed so that our guys can, and gals can uh, separate and our, our operations can become more efficient. So that's where the, the detriment came for the, the lack of funding for the wall. Um, any questions on the wall? That's that's um, that rounds out kind of the past and the present. Um, to get that funding to finish it uh, would be be highly useful for the border patrol. So you recommend the wall? You really believe it's needed, and you really believe that it it not only short uh, makes better use of our assets, as you said, and also um, it's it's protects also the immigrants coming through from what I can tell. Sure. Yeah, I'm um, an advocate for the wall. Definitely don't think that it's the, the end all the be all. Um, but it did, it, it will help our agents. It, it's a good tool for our agents. Now, one of the things we talked about, you, you upon was our article for title 42, excuse me. That's going to be on May 23rd. And these are the migrant protection protocols. Um, 
for those who don't know, um, can you can you elaborate on that for for us and kind of explain what the ramifications are regarding that? Sure. So so migrant protection protocols MPP or stay in Mexico. That's all the same thing. That's one thing. Title forty two is a separate uh, entity. There's a separate deal that was was put in place. Um, Migrant protection protocols or stay in Mexico. Uh, it was it was put into place to address an unprecedented um, humanitarian and security crisis that we saw at the border, and it basically ex- it it ended the exploitation of the very generous immigration law that we had at the time. And so, for example, um, a single adult male comes through the the border in between the ports of entry illegally and is caught by the border patrol. And he wants to claim asylum. Well, because he's crossing between the ports of entry, he's not eligible to claim asylum. So in essence, what this stay in Mexico or migrant protection protocol did is we returned them to Mexico to await their immigration process. Mexico is a safe third country. They agreed to hold people um, and provide for them uh, humanitarian wise while they awaited their court hearings for the asylum process. So that was working very well. We were um, placing a lot of people into Mexico so they could enter uh, the immigration system for their asylum process. Uh, it was working. It was it was a, an arduous process. It was very tough on the ports of entry and our, our brothers and, and sisters in blue with the, um, the um, Customs and Border Protection or, or Customs Officers because uh, they were required to parole them into the country, have them transported up to the courts. And it was a very overwhelming process, but it was working. And then uh, Mexico became overwhelmed. When you talk about the NGOs in Mexico you, that, that help these people uh, try to find jobs, try to find houses, try to just help people live in a foreign country, even though in Mexico it's not the same as Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Cuba, Brazil, or any of the other countries. And so it, it became a very overwhelmed system. And then when the pandemic hit, um, the court shut down and a lot of things changed. So MPP or Stay in Mexico was, it really kind of reached its shelf life and outlived its usefulness because now people were just in Mexico for a very long time. Instead of uh, several months, it turned into a year and a year plus. And that's pretty tough when you're living with the hope of coming through in a process, claiming fear, wanting asylum uh, to reach the country. So that was MPP, or Stay in Mexico. Uh, Title 42, uh, very interesting, you know, put into place. When you talk about Title 42, it enabled the Border Patrol and and Customs and Border Protection to immediately expel people who had recently come from a country um, where there was a communicable disease that they could bring to the country, i.e. COVID. And both of these are non-punitive. They're non-immigration actions. So, like, for Title 42... Uh, say you cross, the Border Patrol apprehends you, we would uh, bring you to our facilities. Uh, because of the pandemic, we kept people outside. We would roll their fingerprints. We would roll through all the databases. We'd do the facial recognition, iris scanning, pictures. And as long as you didn't come back as some kind of hardened criminal, we would send you back to Mexico. And that's what Title 42 did, is it did not allow people to come into the country and further themselves in the country where they're coming from a country that... Uh, they could come with a communicable disease. And, and as you know, COVID was rampant everywhere. And so uh, when Title 42 goes away, MPP or stay in Mexico is 
they say it's still around, but it's just the numbers are so few. And so when Title 42 goes away, under the the laws that the current administration has in place, we have no consequence. We have no consequence delivery for anybody that comes in. There's really very few methods to remove people anymore. And so we are going to catch and release. And if, if you look at immigration just as a whole, once you release single adults into the country, you've virtually done away with immigration and you go into an open border. Um, and that's virtually where we're at. And so, for example, under, I remember when you, if you go back to the Obama administration, they said apprehensions were at an all-time high. True. We were catching a lot of people, but we were also releasing a lot of people. So there's a little bit of a misnomer and we were apprehending and, and doing something with them. We were not. And so in, in the current state, um, somebody crosses the border, they're apprehended, they're processed. They can be sent through uh, ICE and ERO, the Enforcement Removals Office, and operations, and um, they'll process them. And within 48, 72 hours, they're on the street and they're, they're walking. And you have to remember, too, when these people are released, they're not released with work authorization documents. They're not released with uh, NGO, non-government organizational help. They're released, uh, hopefully, that family or friends to help put them up. They're paying under the table. They can be exploited. So you see where that process just continues down the road. It never writes itself. And then if they don't go to 123 Main Street, which is the address they gave to the officer that processed them, then they disappear into the system. All right. And, folks, let's take a little break, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, the rest of the show, but we'll take a little commercial break. All right? We'll be right back. M&J Video Games and Collectibles, sport and non-sport cards, wrestling items, autographed items. We buy, sell, and trade. M&J Video Games and Collectibles, located at 1049 Queen Street, Southington, Connecticut. Call us at 1-860-479-9223 or 860-93-GAMES. M&J Video Games and Collectibles. Wrestling fans, now you too can look as cool as Monty and the Pharaoh by wearing the official Monty and the Pharaoh sunglasses at night for $8.99 each. That's only $8.99 each. Now available at MontyandthePharaoh.com. Do you treat your dog as part of the family? (laughs) Well, so do we. So why not celebrate your pup's birthday with the ultimate party box? Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Party Pup Info, and let us make your pup's party or any celebration perfection. We are back. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Those of you who are catching us late, I have the distinct pleasure of the uh, Deputy Director of Operation Welcome Allies, which was the resettlement of the Afghans in the U.S. Uh, And we're going to talk about that right now. We're going to actually go into that portion of of our show. Uh, Up to this point, we're discussing the problems and issues and what's really going on at the border. And I strongly suggest if you take a chance and catch our show on YouTube, or any one of the other stations where we recorded, you 
see it from the very beginning. It's very, very enlightening. It really opens people's eyes to what's really going on as opposed to what the media has been portraying and politicians have been exploiting for their own benefit. Uh, this show is dedicated to giving the soldiers, the actual people on the ground, the boots on the ground, a voice to really tell everyone what's really going on. And we do it without any commentary on this show. So take it away, Clay. If you get a chance, could you tell us a little bit about Operation Allies? Welcome. Sure. So um, I retired at the end of February, and at the end of the year, I was enjoying uh, the station. It was running just fine. And on September 2nd, I received a call from a very good friend of mine who was at the time the head of the Homeland Security Investigations Office uh, in El Paso. And he asked if I could meet him uh, out on a portion of Fort Bliss on the Doniana side, which is in New Mexico. And so I agreed and I drove up there. And what it was is one of the eight uh, safe havens, as they call them, for Operation Allies Welcome. Operation Allies Welcome was the resettlement uh, after the um, evacuation of the Afghan uh, people. Um, as the, as the military pulled out. So Doniana was one of the largest. Uh, there's there's a couple larger, one in Wisconsin at Fort McCoy and, and others. Um, so I showed up and I didn't really know what to expect. And the military, uh, the army, had constructed, constructed a 10,000 person town in the matter of a few days, um, up to two weeks. Let me, uh, to accept 10,000 people count in a few days. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, it, it, it's amazing. And, and I, I will give all the credit to the 21AD and, um, you know, Major General Sean Bernabe uh, and his team uh, that worked on this effort. Uh, it was incredible. The, the Fort Bliss crew, a uh, tank uh, battalion, just they did an amazing job. You know, we go down the names of the folks from the military that set this up and ran this, um, along with the State Department. They were the first to open it up. And then they, they brought uh, us in from Homeland Security. Like I said, the, the federal lead um, was the head of Homeland Security Investigations, and I was the deputy uh, lead for Operation Allies Welcome. So in essence, um, he dealt with uh, Washington and the headquarters for Operation Allies Welcome. And I was in charge of putting the team together to interact with the military, with the State Department, with the FBI, with all kinds of NGOs and a number of other three-letter agencies to put together a team to create the process to effectively resettle these folks within the United States, our guests, as we call them. And so, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. When you think about there's more towns than you can name in the United States that are less than 10,000 people. The Army built... Uh, a town and it's um, it's a, a military army reserve base that has a capacity of about 1800 people and they built that into a 10,000 person town with wraparound facilities dining defects dining facilities uh, medical uh, you name it uh, housing all of us as well so you had 10,000 of our guests uh, almost at one time up to 12,000 overtime and well over 2,000 People working within the base, you know, whether it was in the enforcement side from the DHS side, uh, whether it was military, whether it was the uh, contracted folks to do any number of things from cleaning to medical to the dining facilities or whatever it was. 
I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I mean, I don't know if people realize what's all involved, just waste management alone it, for that many people. It's just incredible. Um, so, you know, when you, when you talk about the, the challenges that this posed, so we did a number of things. First of all, the Afghan culture is much different than the American culture. Um, I, I learned a lot. You know, there's, there's all kinds of misconceptions or maybe things that are just a, a naive uh, conception of how things are. And so you get out there, you learn, and you work with uh, some of the translators, some of our cultural specialists that were out there helping us. And uh, a lot of the different uh, people from the military that had actually served over in Afghanistan for a number of years that would teach us. And so first and foremost, uh, there's security concerns. You know, you have a town of 10,000. We basically formed a, a police force. It was divided into three sections with mayor cells that were kind of the, the centers of the town, so to speak. You have cultural concerns with, um, you know, in, in Afghanistan, it's not uncommon to uh, hit your wife or to hit a child. And um, so there was a lot of education we needed to do um, to assimilate them into the American society. Because if you release them and they don't know that it's not okay to be, hit your wife, first time they do it, the local police department will show up and there's really no questions asked. You're going to jail. So we did a lot of education. Then because their people were there for months, um, we were able to create a school system. And there were thousands of kids that went to school six days a week. They started learning English. They started learning society. They started learning what it's like to go to school. And, um, you know, when it, it, while observing their cultural um, traditions, it was, it was all kept into perspective. So um, you talk about the challenge of creating a process to have them intake into the system. They're all free to leave. They're paroled into the country. So they didn't have to stay there. We just had to be accountable for them. Um, because of the volume that was um, removed from Afghanistan at one time. And they were taken to lily pads and Ramstein and Italy and Qatar and UAE and different places. We ran additional security checks to make sure that nothing slipped through the cracks as far as anybody who was uh, possibly on a terrorist watch list. And so we did a real good job with that. And it's in coordination with all kinds of people with State Department and all these NGOs that are normally uh, OCONUS NGOs, uh, IOM, IRC, uh, the State Department, of course. And so working together, uh, we got everything done with CIS and the, the Citizen Immigration Services and, and all the other good people that, that work real hard. And then the Homeland Security crew um, put together a process in coordination with the military uh, who provided the logistics and state and the NGOs who provided the resettlement. And uh, it was an incredible uh, way to cap out the career. And um, if you draw a comparison, though, just to talk a little bit about the process that was put into place. When the Afghans were resettled into the United States, wherever they went to within the United States, they were received uh, by an NGO, a non-government organization. And for up to eight months, they would be assisted with finding housing, with um, sending their kids up for school, with medical uh, with some money for food um, and some education services uh, up to eight months, not guaranteed. Um, but they were provided that to assimilate into the country. If you compare that to what's going on with the immigration crisis on the border, we are just apprehending people from all kinds of countries around the world, and they're being released into the country without any any services, any any chance. So they're going to the communities 
where they know people and you're going to have a basic community of maybe Guatemalans or Cubans or you know, if you go to South Florida, you can see the different demographics down there. And so that's the, the stark difference between the two. Well, I know they're different demographics and the Afghans, many of them had been fighting and working alongside the United States for a long time. Uh, not so much from these other countries, but uh, Afghans are intelligent people. Many of them speak English, um, have a trade or a craft that they're, they're able to do uh, to provide for themselves. Once they get in the country, they get a work authorization document and they start working through the immigration system. But when you talk about, for example, maybe somebody who comes from the mountains of Guatemala who doesn't even speak Spanish, they speak a, a dialect, maybe like Quiche, and they maybe have a third grade education at that. Uh, you can see the stark difference in the problems that are caused by catch and release and by what's going on at the border and, and comparing it with how we did things with Operation Allies Welcome. Can you give an example of like uh, one of the problems that might occur for these individuals who, let's say, are from Guatemala or great education? So the challenge for these folks coming in is most likely because of the, the pipeline of immigration that's been in place for generations. They will have some family, friend, or some kind of familiar tie in the country to help support them, maybe. But when you talk about um, going to sign up for like a social service where maybe they need some help with food or some medical for their children or even kids that get, get their kids in school, they're going to be afraid because there's that, that conception. If I go in and I ask for help, I'm going to be turned over to immigration. I'll be removed uh, back to my country. So that creates desperation. When you look, you see the news and it's a disproportionate number, um, but there are a lot of illegal people in the country that do commit crimes, whether it's murder or some kind of a violent crime. Um, but one of the things that's not highlighted in the media and, and while the politicians um, beat us up. The media beats us up. What they don't highlight is the number of sexual predators, the number of murders, the number of rapists, the number of whatever individual that's coming through um, people tied to terrorism that the Border Patrol does apprehend. That's not talked about, you know. And then uh, I think it's uh, exaggerated when you have an illegal alien kill somebody. While it's very unfortunate, um, there's a lot more people that aren't illegal, you know, that do kill people. So. We have a, just a disproportionate view that the media and uh, politics have painted for this country. And it is, it's, uh, it's skewed the whole process, which is, is a terrible process as it is. We have so many holes that need to be filled. We have so many um, lines of effort that could be done to help this process that just aren't being accomplished. Well, what, you know, you talk about the holes. What holes would you fill? And how well, you first and foremost, you, so the Border Patrol is like, um, for a bad analogy, like bumper bowling. You put the bumpers up and you can't throw a gutter ball. Gutter ball. So you, you, the ball can bounce between those, those bumpers all at once, and it'll end up hitting some pins down at the end. It'll end up doing what it's intended to do. You can't throw a gutter ball on the Border Patrol because you're dealing with human lives. Um, and with a porous border, when you have more of a humanitarian effort than an enforcement effort, then it leads into the problem of drugs. Um, it enables these cartels who, while the human commodity is as valuable or more valuable than smuggling narcotics these days, it opens the board for any type of illicit activity to happen. And so if you're going to plug a hole, and this is a very broad statement, 
you're going to plug a hole. There has to be consequence. Now, if you're going to open up the border and you're going to allow more people in, that's fine. That's the decision of the people in power, whether you agree or disagree. It's an apolitical approach, and that's that bumper bowling. Give us the rules, and we'll bounce in between, and we'll enforce them all. But you have to have a consequence. You can't just have an open border where you can't control. So the big problem in 2019 is when we switched from an enforcement to a humanitarian posture, it's the age-old intelligence question. We didn't know what we didn't know. And so if you asked who crossed the border, if you asked where did they come from, were they a terrorist, were they a murderer, were they a rapist, we had no idea. We had no idea how many people we missed. Now, in these day, this day and times, we know roughly we have hundreds of thousands of gotaways, as we call them, or people that get through without being apprehended. But the problem with that is we don't know what they are. A gotaway is a gotaway. We know numbers now where we didn't know that in 19. But now we know the numbers were missing, but we just don't know what they are. And that is the danger to the United States. And that is the danger when you remove Title 42. And I'll add one more thing on Title 42. So, yes, May 23rd is the day that they say that they're going to remove Title 42. As I said before, when an action was put into place or a program that would attempt to slow the flow of immigration, it took about two weeks. The problem is the media, the White House press secretary, everybody's announced that Title 42 is planning on going May 23rd. The problem is already here. There are stations that are catching twice as many people as our station was in 19 as the busiest station in the country. We apprehended the largest group ever in Border Patrol history in 1,038. It came through one night in about six minutes. We had two agents working on the line, and we had two National Guard units running MSC or night vision trucks. The National Guard can't interact with the aliens or anybody, so it was two agents managing over 1,000 people. That was unheard of. Now... We have agents dealing with groups of 200, 500, 800 at a time, all the time. So even though it's been announced Title 42 is going away on the 23rd, yes, that's when the problem is going to hit. The problem is already here because the memo is out. People know, and they're coming. NGOs all over Mexico are full. They can't handle any more people. So you ask about plugging a hole, we need a consequence. We need something in place regardless of what the vision is of the administration, if they want to have a more lenient system towards immigration or a more stringent system towards immigration. It's of no consequence, but you have to have a consequence at the end of it, or it's just an open border and you won't know what you don't know. All right. And with that, we want to take our second uh, commercial break. And when we do, we'll, when we come back, we'll, we'll finish up. And uh, I'm sure Frank has uh, some parting words as well. And we'll be ready for that, I guess. All right. And thanks a lot. And we'll be right back. And APB, American Protection Bureau, voted number one best on Long Island for all your security needs. Call 631-390-9050. That's 631-390-9050. APB. Jimmy, I gotta take a dump. What? No. I mean, I need a dumpster. (sighs) Well, for all those needs, you need to call Big V Dumpster Rental. Long Island, New York, 631-900-DUMP. Hmm. 
and Nitro's Garage for all your automotive needs. Call 646-675-2349. That's 646-675-2349. For all your automotive needs, Nitro's Garage, ask for Jack. We are back. So, Clayton, I, we're about to wrap up our show. I really want to thank you for, for coming on here. Um, in closing, is there anything you'd like to discuss or say that, that's on your mind regarding um, the Border Patrol to this, at this point? You know, the job has changed a lot, you know, since I came in. I came in in January of 1997, um, seeing a lot of different administrations. Um, obviously, the first portion of my career was there's a lot of moderacy within politics, and it seemed to work the best. Uh, both sides working together, uh, consequence to it. And I think the largest challenge that I had towards the end of my career was the morale of our agents. Uh, the Border Patrol is a great job. Any any job in the enforcement side of the government, uh, whether it's through Customs and Border Protection at the bridges, whether it's TSA at the airports, uh, Homeland Security Investigations, FBI, DEA, CIA, you name it, all these agencies are great agencies to work for. Um, I would encourage people, if you are interested in a, in a job with the Border Patrol, apply. Uh, it's a tough job. You don't get to live in the most, – most locations aren't the most desirable places in the world. Um, but it's a very rewarding job, uh, very, uh, very rewarding in the sense that you're in enforcement and you arrest more people than, than most people can imagine. But yet the humanitarian side of you, you get to help people more than anything. So it was, uh, I was blessed beyond probably what I deserve uh, to have the career that I did and do the things that I did. Uh, I got to travel the country. I got to do binational stuff with Mexico. Um work with any number of different agencies that you can imagine, the military. Um, so while the video, the recruitment video is flying around in helicopters and jumping out of them and riding ATVs and horses and, and whatnot, uh, it, it can be that fun. Uh, maybe not every day. There's down times, but definitely a good job. And I would just ask if people see this, not to believe everything they see in the media, whether it's they think it's somebody whipping somebody from a horse, which was a completely false narrative coming out. Uh, down in Del Rio, um, or uh, maybe a positive story where they show somebody holding a baby that they rescued out of the river as it was drowning. Um, Border Patrol is a lot of good, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun, very rewarding, and uh, definitely not for everybody, but um, I highly recommend checking it out if you like to be outside and like to help people. Well, I, I really see you guys as real martial artists. I mean, the, the art martial arts really means part of the military. You are a paramilitary organization. Um, I highly recommend to any young man or woman today to look into the Border Patrol uh, because of that humanitarian uh, opportunity. Uh, it gives you people, I think, a sense to serve their higher purpose in life, and I think that's why we're on this planet. And I chose that path for myself, and I got a tremendous amount of recognition for it. Um, and I highly recommend that uh, if you really want to feel fulfilled in your life and successful to all of you out there, uh, you know, 
find out what that is for you. Whether it's serving your fellow man, being part of the arts, whatever that is. But pursue that in your life. And Clay, I can see that that is true with you. And I want to thank you again for being on our show. Um, you definitely did serve your higher purpose. And uh, we never even got a chance to talk about your dog, Jocko, who is world famous as well, um, by the way. Uh, so, uh, I, again, I want to thank you for being my first guest and struggling through all the uh, technical difficulties as we're working this out. And uh, God bless you, my brother, and I hope to see you soon. Take care. Thank you, Clay. Appreciate it. And to my audience, thank you all for being here on Noel's Bar. Remember, this is where you're going to hear it. The truth, unedited, no commentary, straight from the guys who are on the front lines, the boots on the ground. What are they saying? What do we need to know? Thank you. Bless you all. Have a good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Take care. God bless.